sermon since our scripture has already been read. Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can come to this space, that we can worship, um, that we can be near to you, and that we can uh, open up your word that uh, you have seen fit to give to us, to, to give to us as a gift, as your grace, as your kindness. And so we just ask and pray in these moments uh, as we center ourselves around this ancient library of stories and texts that lead us closer to you, that you would meet us here and allow us to be shaped and formed by these words and by, um, yeah, the, the heart behind them and the ideas and the thoughts that we uh, submit ourselves to. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do that, that you would come, you would consecrate, consecrate and convict our hearts and our minds uh, to your service and to your will. And may the words that are spoken this morning uh, honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is our last Sunday in James. And then next week, we'll be in the lectionary uh, for a little off week that will help us set up Advent, and then we'll kick into Advent on the next, that December 3rd, first Sunday in December. And so we had originally said that we were only going to do James for five weeks, and then we were like, well, let's like add, we kind of got here and there, and then we we're like, but let's make sure we get the end of James, because, you know, I mean, it's the end, we've been here this long, we might as well like see the conclusion of the thing. If you are familiar with New Testament letters and you have read the New Testament, you know, maybe more than once, you're kind of accustomed to the way a letter normally ends, especially Paul. If you want a fancy, you know, $5 word, you can say in the Pauline epistles, they, they have a certain uh, benediction that they end with. And so there's this kind of typical way that a letter wraps up in the New Testament. That's because it was customary for the way the uh, letters were written. What we see in the New Testament isn't unique just to Christ followers and to the early church. That was the way letters were kind of written with information that people would, this was normal. And so there was a way in which a lot of that was normal. We talked about this at the beginning of the series. James is not normal in the sense of New Testament letters. James just sort of ends in verse 20. What we read this morning, that is the end of the letter. That's it. That's where it stops. There's no real conclusion. Not only is there no real conclusion, it is a rapid fire from verse 12 to 20 of a random smattering of topics that have some small connection to the things that we have discussed up until this point, but not a lot of connection. Uh, if you are familiar with Strengths Finders, connectedness is in my top five. And it took me a great bit of effort to try to find connected ideas in this end, that like to the whole book. Normally these types of things pop out to me, and I see connections where connections really aren't. And people are like, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't see how that's connected. And I'm like, well, it seems obvious to me. Even here, I'm like, I, I don't know. There's, there's not a lot. So what most people think James is sort of doing at the end of this is not all that dissimilar from what you do in a conversation or a meeting with someone when you have gone too long or whatever it's wrapping up, and you're just kind of like, hey, before we go, these five things, don't forget, you know, like, we, we got to make sure we remember it, and you just like, hit them real quick. And so that's sort of what James does. So this morning, in a slightly different style than I prefer, to you it might feel the exact same, but internally to me, this is more like going through it. I'm just going to kind of take each one and talk about them, and kind of go, well, what's he saying here? Why is this included? Because also, some of these passages right here at the end of James 5 are some weird ones. And they're some of the ones that may be some interesting uh, theological ideas and practical and ethical things that you maybe were told growing up or maybe uh, experienced growing up 
have a root in James 5. And this is some of the section of James where some of the people that are uncomfortable with this being in the Bible and understanding it come from. These are where you start to get into some of these weird things. And it's because there's not a lot of context here. And so then people are kind of free to do with it what they will in some ways. And they're quippy and they're proverbial and they're kind of like easy to repeat and to say over and over again. And so remember, that's kind of what James is doing. James is writing in some sense this New Testament Proverbs, this way in which he's taking the teachings of Jesus and he's summing them up because James is after one thing. And I'll say this now and I'll say it again at the end. James is after this idea that the truth of the gospel be lived just as much as it be believed. And he doesn't want us to separate those things. James wants the truth of the gospel to be lived, the truth to be lived just as much as he wants it to be believed. And so he's rattling these things off because he's desperately wanting the people and the listeners of this letter and the New Testament church and the followers of Jesus to live in a certain kind of way that is in line with the beliefs that they think are to be true about the gospel. And so he's summed up Jesus' teachings in five short chapters, and he's writing this. And some people think that maybe somebody else compiled it, and, you know, that James had, like, taught these things. Whatever it is, James is the author of here. So it's this way of us trying to wrestle with, what does it mean to live this thing out in live action? And so we'll go through these five topics and kind of run through them, because I think that's what we see in 12 through 20 and that's because of the work of people that are way smarter than me and that, uh, you know, have PhDs and stuff. Sort of say that five things are sort of going on here, just rapid fire right at the end with little to no connection to the rest of the letter. The first thing that we see is in verse 12. Now, verse 12, people debate. You may or may not care about this. I care about these things, so I'll say it briefly in case somebody else cares about it. There's always debates in the Bible, where do sections go? Is it connected to this section? Is it connected to that section? Because if you remember, if you would find one of the original manuscripts, which we don't have the very original manuscripts, but we have rewritings of them. If you would find one of these and it was in the Greek, there would be no chapters, there would be no verses, there would be no headings. And so you're kind of guessing where the paragraphs go. You're kind of guessing, and that's because Greek's written in a weird style that's not, you know, we don't have the perfect indentions and these kind of obvious signs of, well, this is a new paragraph. It looks a lot more stream of conscience. Like, it looks a lot more, and so you're making the guess as an interpreter, as someone that's translating, we're kind of going, okay, I think this is a paragraph. And so there's people that are questioning, does verse 12 go with the section that we preached on last week that Kyle gave to us at the start of five? Or is it the start of a conclusion? And here's why this matters, is because it starts with a word in the NIV that translates it above all else. And so it's kind of insinuating or saying that the thing that James is about to say is more important than everything else that has been said up until this point. And so there is some debate. Where, where does this go? And because of that, some people want to say, like, well, no, it's just the previous section when he's talking about how to use our words well and the kindness and all of this stuff, or is it the whole book? And you guys know me. I'm going to say it's probably a little bit of both, and it's also splitting hairs to some degree for us to worry all that much about it. But I think this matters on how we understand and get to a 21st century understanding of what Scripture is trying to do and why, when we start to discuss things, that you and I can disagree on some things and both kind of be right exegetically speaking, because we're making guesses here, educated, good guesses. Uh, there's reasons for these guesses. There's literally the book, one of the books Kyle and I went over, this five chapters was about this thick, 
Man spent way too much time on a lot of sentences, and I was just like, skim, okay? So, but people have got good reasons behind this. But the point being is that there is a way in which you and I can disagree on something and both cite the Bible because we might disagree on, well, that goes to that section, that goes in this section. There's so lots of this that's way more fascinating than just James here in 5, but I wanted to include this because I think it matters as we try to figure out what does it look like to live out the truth that we believe to be held in this. How we understand scripture really, really matters in that. It becomes a tricky subject. It becomes a nuanced subject. And it's not as simple as just saying, well, the Bible says. And it's like, well, what's the most important here, okay? So we're going to go with this little bit of in-between. He's saying, therefore, above all else, don't make oaths. Don't swear. Now... There's another place we can stop just for a second and unpack what the Bible is and what it's doing. Many of you have probably been told in your life, especially growing up in the South, even if you weren't in a hyper-religious family, that you shouldn't swear, right? Like swearing's bad, don't swear. Those are swear words. And we've conflated this into some of that when translations get messed up and we're like, well, those are swear words. He's not talking about that. He's not saying don't swear as in, you know, these four-letter words that are just words that we've given a, a, a meaning to. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's not what he's talking about. And this is kind of tangential to what's happening in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, that we also grew up in the church, that you should not take God's name in vain. And we say things like, don't say, you know, GD and all of this kind of stuff, because that's taking God's name in vain. Again, not what he's talking about. That wouldn't have been a reference in Exodus 19 or Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, wouldn't be a reference in James 5 either. And I reference the Ten Commandments because it's a similar thing happening when he's talking about oaths here. There's a lot of the Greek that's being used is the same Greek that's being used connected to those passages in the Old Testament. And what James is trying to say is do not make promises and swear to things and use the name of God to your advantage if you don't really know you're going to be able to do it, or if you're trying to trick somebody into doing it, or don't require someone else to swear by God if they don't know for sure if they're going to be able to hold to the promise that they are making. So in the Ten Commandments, we hear that. We say, oh, you're not supposed to use God's name in vain, so we're not supposed to say the word, right? But what the Ten Commandments are saying is don't use the name of God as a justification to act in a certain kind of way. Don't vainly, arrogantly, blindly, like flippantly attach God's name to your actions. Shout out to everyone in here that either got dumped or dumped someone because God told them to. This would be a good example of probably using God's name in vain. Now, God does tell us sometimes to, you know, end things, and that's it. but most of the time... Well, you know, I feel like God's telling me, like, we just don't. Well, like, maybe you just don't click, and there's no chemistry, and that's okay. You can end it. Or maybe you told someone else to try to convince them to be with you. I really think God's telling us that we need to be together. This is using God's name in vain. It's also creepy, and it's manipulative, right? And so this is the same kind of thing he's warning the people in the New Testament church to not do. Now, there's probably some sort of context here that we're not familiar with, there are probably specific people that he's writing to and that he uh, knows some situations in their lives, I'm sure, in the same way that when we preach, we know things that are going on in your lives. And when we say things, you're like, are they talking directly to me? It's like, well, maybe it's not directly, but we, ha we understand what's going on. So we want to address those things. We don't know what it is, but there must be something going on 
where the people of God are asking people to commit to things and they're using God as a like manipulation or an influence on them to commit to things that maybe they should or shouldn't be committing to or maybe they can or can't commit to it. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't make oaths. Don't swear to things and use God to sort of justify it or to add weight to it or gravitas. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's also talking about what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5. It's direct language when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And he says the exact same thing. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Don't swear. Don't make oaths. Now, if you read scripture through Paul, through the Gospels, through the Old Testament, it is clear that Yahweh is not against you making some sort of binding agreement or a contractual agreement or even standing up and saying, I swear by God that I will love you until death do us part, right? Or maybe if you go to court or you take on a certain kind of job and you in some way pledge yourself to that thing, Scripture's okay with that. They have space for that. Again, it's this manipulation of using God towards your advantage and trying to use God in like a, a casual way and or this idea that oftentimes we are guilty of giving really flower, flowery language and kind of like making it sound like we're more committed, more in, more a part of the thing than when we actually are. And what he's saying is, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Be a, be a people of what you say you're going to do. If you're going to do it, do it. No reason to caveat, pull, you know. And here's where, like, in the 21st century, like, there's a whole boat, boatload of, like, ways in which we could be, like, so, you know, stop saying maybe or if nothing else is going on. Like, if you want to do it, do it. If you don't, just have the, the gumption to look the person in the eye and say, I'm probably not coming to that. See, even there, I caveated it with probably, right? We have a really hard time with doing this, with just looking someone in the eye and being like, nope, I'm not going to do that. Or, yes, I will be there and then actually being there. And so he's saying, this is a way for you to display the truth of what it means to follow Jesus. And I make the jokes about the 21st century because I really genuinely believe in our time and like day here in the year of our Lord, 2023, Birmingham, Alabama, that if we would be a group of people that just showed up to things when we said we would show up and we didn't send the text like, hey, well, you, we still good at five? No. Hey, I'll see you at five, right? If we actually committed to things, if we followed through in a wishy-washy, flip-floppy society and cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And I don't mean that like because everybody's a snowflake. I mean that in that like we have a cell phone and we can now get out of things whenever we want. If we were actually people that just did what we did and were honest and used our words directly and didn't beat around the bush and didn't add things to it, I think it would begin to stand out. And I think this is what James is after, these subtle ways that the truth of what we believe, it's so much more than just like, oh, well, I just believe and it doesn't have an impact on my life. I really think that the gospel has a dramatic impact on the way we function and operate in the world and society and culture around us. But it's not just by wearing t-shirts and saving people, although he's going to get to that, right? Like the, the restoration and the forgiveness and the bringing people into the church does matter. But also the gospel changes the way you live, changes the way you function. Your words mean what they mean. And we know in a society then and now, it must be a human thing that oftentimes people want to use words in a way that is advantageous to themselves, but doesn't always mean exactly what they think they're supposed to mean. And this is what he's driving at. And so then he's just going to kind of jump. So he's going to say, don't, don't do these things. You know, use your tongue well, follow along, don't swear, make oaths in this kind of way. 
And then something in his brain as he's writing, maybe James had ADHD too, you know? So he's just going to jump. He's like, wait, now I'm going to move on to something else. If you're troubled, this is the one spot where maybe there's some connection back, you know, because he starts with trials. This word troubled that we got in the NIV translation, very similar to the same thing as, as someone that's experiencing trials or difficulty that he talks about in James 1. He's giving us practical advice now. If that was you and that resonated with you and you're like, hey, that's me, I, I'm in trials and tribulation and he promised this hope and this glory, he says, just pray about it. I think, our, again, 21st century modern minds seems like really simple things to say, but honestly, for most of us, it's probably pretty profound advice because if we're really honest about it, the things that we're most troubled and trialed by are oftentimes the things that we don't probably spend a whole lot of time in prayer about. When we find difficulty, obstacles, persecution, these things that would be associated with this word, he's saying it's real simple. Just pray. Just spend some time praying to the Lord. Now, here's the thing. We don't always have our life and the truth line up with our actions and what we believe because oftentimes we maybe don't actually believe the things that we say that we believe. There's more of a gap. There's a dissonance there oftentimes for us. I think his insistence on prayer here and the insistence on asking for healing that we're about to get to in the next few verses is related to a kind of like barometer, if you will, a thermostat of saying, if you actually believe that Jesus and Yahweh is who they say they are and who we say they are, then it would naturally make sense that you would be doing these things. I think it's a little bit more polemical than it comes off at the surface. It's not just practical advice, but it's also a way of kind of checking and looking around and going, if you're having problems and you're not praying, then like that might be a problem and you need to be in prayer. So if you're going through difficult things, pray. And later he's going to say, you know, invite people in to pray with you. And I think that that would imply here just as, as much as it does in sickness. Because he's immediately going to jump and say on the opposite end of the spectrum. So if you find yourself difficult, hard to believe, hard to engage, hard to process, and you're not praying, you should pray. If you find yourself in a state of courage and confidence and things seem to be going well, you should sing songs of praise. And the songs of praise that are being named here are the words that are being used for psalms, which in the first century Jewish mind, a psalm was not something you read in your Bible all by yourself. But if you were going to sing a psalm, that meant you were with the people of God and you were going to come up. And the way they did this in the first century, it's really cool. We should do more of this. All the sacrifices and things like this, I had a class on the psalms. And we actually, he made us do this. We had to write our own psalm. And you had to get up and you had to tell the room why you were giving this psalm, what you were going through, what you had been experiencing and what God had done for you. And then you read your psalm in poetry style in front of the entire classroom. And this is what he's saying. So this is what they were doing in, first, like in the Jewish liturgy. The psalms would have been this moment where you would have picked one or there would have been one handed to you after you had gone through something and you had said, the Lord has delivered me. You would stand up and you would sing it in the congregation together as a result of or connected to the thing that God had done in your life. So when he says sing songs of praise to God, he's not just talking about you know throwing on whatever Apple Music playlist 
Yes, I'm a millennial and I use Apple Music. Sorry, young people, Spotify is not as cheap. It's just Apple's cheaper. So we do this thing where we think that like that. No, he's talking about being here in this space. When you are in a moment of thanksgiving, when things are, you know, there's this thing in your spirit where you're confident in who God is and you see his work at hand, come together and sing. And so his point is, whether you are sad and down and out and difficult and you're having a hard time seeing the hand of God and the work of God around you and in your life, or you are courageously kind of blazing forward into that work and into the kingdom, you should be together and you should be praying and singing alongside of one another. And this is what we say all the time when we come here in this space. This is what we believe that Mosaic should be. Mosaic should be this verse of James, that you find yourself coming here and that you should not check your emotions at the door. That you should not try to conjure up some sort of feeling or emotion that brings you here when things are good or when things are desperate, whatever your reason to come to church is. You should come into this space and you should bring that with you and from that space you sit before the Lord. And I think what is beautiful about that practical step that goes a little bit further that's not in James is that if you are the one in trials and tribulations and finding trouble in your life, sitting next to the one that can sing thanksgiving and sing praise to God, there is this kind of mutual effect that goes on. And here's what's really cool about this. The word that he uses for those that, in the NIV might say happy, I think it says happy. The word that he's using here is the same word that gets used in the New Testament by Paul to say that you should have courage. And in the other context, this same word is always used in the context of someone that should take heart, that should find joy, that should be excited, even though life is not going the way that they think it should go. So this is not someone that is courageous and happy and excited and is singing songs of praise to God because everything has been handed to them and they have gotten everything that they have wanted. No, this is a person that stands up and says, the world does not always make sense. Life is difficult. It is hard. I am not the center of it. The world does not revolve around me. It is not about me, and I'm going to die one day. And yet I will stand and praise God for his goodness and his mercy and his grace. It's not a happy, is not like a circumstantial kind of feeling. It is this deep inner state of knowing who God is. And I think that there is a connection here that James does not say, but that I have experienced anecdotally in my own life. When you find yourself in trials and difficulties and you pray, a natural transition is that you end up in a spot over time where even though the circumstances may or may not have changed as a result of the prayer, what can change is the internal kind of uh, view or assessment of what is happening. And you can stand and you can praise and you can say that God is good despite the fact that life around me is hard. Because guess what? Life is really hard and it does not get delivered in two days. Like it is this thing in which we have to sit in and God wants to meet you in that. And this is another moment where the truth of what the gospel gives to us can be lived in a kind of way that lines up with what we believe. And oftentimes there is a disconnect there because we want our circumstances and our feelings to change and we want them to be fixed and we want someone else to do something about it. And we think everything should be exactly perfect the way that we think it should be. And we should be best friends or whatever it is with everybody. And yet we don't pause and say, well, maybe I should pray about that. 
And we don't realize that some of the anxiety and the angst that we feel is a disconnect that we are out of tune with or out of step with the Creator as the created. And Scripture offers, and my life offers, and some of your lives offer, because I've sat across from you with coffee and food and heard your stories, and you are evidence to me that when we pray and when we place ourselves before the Lord, and yes, we need to do a whole lot of other things in a lot of these situations. It is not only prayer. He does not say that. But when we do that, there's an alignment with our life and the Creator's that begins to infuse something into us that brings us a ability to sing songs of thanksgiving and of praise and to bless God and to understand that He is in control and He is in charge. And it allows us to live in a certain kind of way. And then He says, okay, we're going to move on. If you're sick, it's kind of like trials and tribulations, and you're unable by the context of the language that's being used here, it seems to be that you're so sick you're incapable of getting out of your house or where you are. It says to reach out to the elders and to have them come and to pray for you. The truth of what we believe, lining up with the actions of what we believe, and seeing this truth be both, is put on display once again. He's saying if you really believe who God is, then why would you not want to participate in the healing that he is willing to offer to you? At least ask for it, because you know where it comes from. The source of the healing is God. I think a lot of us are uncomfortable with the ideas of thinking about and praying for healing. Have you ever asked somebody to pray for your healing? And what they actually end up praying for is everything but your actual healing? They mean well. And I'm not trying to throw stones. But I'm guilty of it sometimes too, because especially if it's somebody like maybe they're kind of, they're on the fence, they're maybe a believer, not a believer. And like, I don't want to be like, God, I pray that you would heal them of this. And then they, like, don't get healed. And then they're like, see, it's all fake. It's not real anyways. Told you all this. I feel this with my children sometimes when my boys, I love it. There's something about the spirit that is so, perme like, permeating within them that when they are hurt and when they are scared, the first thing they will ask me to do is, Daddy, will you pray for me? I don't model that to them all that well. So, like, that's the Holy Spirit, not me. It's a parent. It's really, you see this a lot. It's, you don't really get a lot, much of the credit. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll find myself holding back, right? Like, I don't want to pray for the healing because I'm like, well, if it doesn't come true, if it doesn't change, if the pain in the leg doesn't go away immediately, then like, will they spin into an existential crisis and none of this is real? And I, dad said that we should pray and then it didn't work. We do this. We, we hold back from praying for it. And James is saying, if you believe what is true, then, then push, pray, do this thing, ask for healing. Because healing comes from God, and the New Testament is full of it. And there's nowhere in the New Testament that indicates that it was only going to happen for 62 years or whatever it was, and then all of a sudden that healing power just magically goes away. No, he seems to say this is the life of a believer. If you believe these things, ask for it. Let the work of the Lord begin to be tangibly present in your life in these moments. And yes, we can explain lots of things away and, and we understand more than they did in the first century with science and medicine. And, you know, I think that there's some of you in this room that work in nursing and in medicine that you have the gift of healing in the way that we understand it in the 21st century. But we should ask the Lord and we should be beseeching before God in the throne and asking that he would come into our lives because this is what James wants us to do. And this is what we need to be doing. We need to be living in such a way that these things that are contained within the context of this book actually come out and change the way we live our lives here. I'm convinced that this is why we have an unbelieving world. 
It's like you know, all the studies you can go through. Uh, Rachel and I were just having this conversation recently that you can talk about. That there's all this stuff about like it's not the size of the church, it's not the denomination, it's not the things that uh, you might try to like conjure up. It's not the activities, the conferences, the the camps that will show that there is evidence that a child will end up, that was born in a household of faith, will end up being a believer into adulthood. Do you want to know what it is? Like, overwhelming. Small church, big church, no children's ministry, giant, best children's ministry the world has ever created. All of the studies will indicate that it is a household in which the child, as looking back, the adult looking back onto their childhood, will say that I saw the evidence of the Holy Spirit actually changed the way my family and my like community immediately like my family and my family's friends like that it changed them that the holy spirit actually did something and that they actually believed in that household that this mattered beyond just going on sunday mornings and james knows this james is saying we, we we have to engage in such a way that we believe that the holy spirit wants to invade into our lives and do something amongst us so he's saying go pray for healing come let it, let it happen. He asked for the elders to come. This is maybe elders as in the office that we understand it from Ephesians. Maybe it's just the older people that have a little wisdom and age and that are able to kind of assess what's going on. You know, I mean, I love some of you, but if I'm sick, like I'm usually, or my kids are sick, I'm calling people older than me that have seen this before, you know, unless you're a trained medical professional and you're younger than me, then I'll probably call you. But we live in an age, uh, in a moment now where we like decry the wisdom of the elderly and we kind of want to push old people out, and, and everything's new and up and coming, I would say to you that the gospel implores us to uh, actually give ear to people that have gone before you, and that maybe you should stop thinking that you're different, and that, well, I, I'm, I'll, it'll be different for me. As someone that spent a very long time thinking they were different, I think that's like the last two years, I've been very aware of the fact that so many people gave me lots of really good advice, and loved me, and cared for me, and I was like, yeah, but like, I'm different. I'm, like, that, that won't happen to me. And now I'm like, man, those people actually knew what they were talking about, didn't they? I should write a lot of letters to people that are 10 years older than me and be like, yeah, it's the way it is, isn't it? I've actually apologized to my sisters and to Kyle and other parents that had went before me. And I'm like, man, I'm sorry. Like, that was totally me, wasn't it? And they're like, it's okay. We love you. We should give ear to this. So this is, come, let these people assess, help you. And, and anoint them with oil. And we do this here at Mosaic. We think that this is a moment where you anoint people with oil as a sign, as this, this sacramental moment, right, where you're consecrating that person and saying, this person belongs to the Lord. And the Lord is free to do as he sees fit with this person. And it's a sign and a symbol of the Holy Spirit being on them. And we see this from the Old Testament, New Testament. And again, this is something that we believe that should continue into this day. So he says, if you do all this, if you pray over someone and, and healing comes or if it doesn't come, what oftentimes will happen is that in that process, that person will realize the sin in their lives and they will ask for forgiveness. This is one of those moments where in the 21st century we get a little skeptical. James gets weird here. Let's acknowledge it. In the first century, not just in Judaism, but uh, pervasively across the board, if you were a good person, you had better health. If you were a bad person, you had poorer health. We work with House of Hope in Uganda, where this is still a very prevalent idea in like mainline culture, that if you are born with disabilities and there are things wrong with you, then there must have been some sort of curse, some sort of demonic presence, something, something was wrong, somebody sinned somewhere. 
Jesus, Job, we got some stories in the Bible where we say we shouldn't rely on this too much. We know this is not true. We now have science and we know how genetics and bacteria work and it's not just because you're a bad person. You might have just gotten sick. We know how viruses work and all this kind of stuff. But what I would also say is that Jesus does give space where it does seem to think that maybe the spiritual and the physical do overlap sometimes. And I think the more we understand some other things about science and medicine and psychology, that we know that we are not these separate things, that our bodies and our souls and our minds and our emotions, they're not all like these categories that exist in isolation from one another, but they're actually this like amalgamation, this, this blending of these things having direct impact on one another. If our body can hold the score from trauma, which I firmly believe that it can and that it does, then we must absolutely believe that there is something about spiritual health and our physical being that can possibly be connected sometimes. And I love that James uses the word if here. If they were in sin and they were healed, not if they were healed, he, he seems to imply that the healing will happen, but if they were in sin, then they will also find forgiveness in their healing. He's saying it's a natural result. And he's not necessarily saying there's causation there. there. We imply the causation because that is what the time around them did and we experience people to do it. But there's a correlation, possibly. There's a connection. If you've ever had chronic pain, if you've ever dealt with things, your emotional and your spiritual state will oftentimes dwindle. And if you are relieved of that chronic pain, you will find yourself being able to be more connected emotionally and spiritually. You guys have dealt with this. And I think he's saying that there's a way in which the body, the physical, and the spiritual overlap. There's a way in which that they are connected to one another. And it is not saying that your physical conditions are caused solely by your sin, but I think it is saying that if you experience healing, there's a way in which you will find freedom spiritually that wasn't once there, which is why he's imploring us to pray for this. Because he wants to see people both physically and spiritually restored. He wants to see us move into that. This is, it's tricky, it's nuanced, it's complicated. But I think we could, would do well to not just dismiss it with our 21st century minds. To know that it's not 100% all the time. In fact, I'd say it's a small percentage. But to also know that in that physical healing, that there is a way in which people do find restoration in God. That they do find a way into the kingdom. That they do find healing in a spiritual sense along with physical healing. That it is a great tool to, again, see the truth be lived lined up with the truth that is believed. And to have faith in that. Now, here's what he says. He says, okay, so listen, this is why a righteous man or a regular person should seek to be a righteous man. Because those are the prayers that are heard. Those are the prayers that are engaged. It is not a works thing. And this is what, again, makes people uncomfortable in James. What he's saying is the power of God that makes you and I righteous by confessing our sins and being forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross his death, burial, and resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers and equips us to live this life. That is the power, that is the spirit, that is the acting force and energy and agent behind healing. And so those that pray with that kind of faith and have experienced that kind of forgiveness and have experienced that kind of transformation in their life, they are the ones then that should be praying with that kind of faith that they would see the healing that is done by the Lord. It's not the righteous man themselves. It's not the oil itself. It is the spirit animating that person. It is the spirit that brings the righteousness. And, he, and so he's saying that that is available to all of you. Not just 
this select group of people, but that all of God's people should pray and ask for the forgiveness of their sins, experience the forgiveness of God, the, uh, the way in which we are aligned with the kingdom, and in so doing, as we experience that, we then are equipped with that very spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to then go and do the things of the kingdom in and around the people's lives and context and cultures that we find ourselves in. He says, isn't this what Elijah did? Wasn't he just a normal person that prayed to God and asked for these things to happen and miracles happen? He goes back to the Old Testament. He says, this is normal. And so he's saying that this is what it means to line our faith and our belief. And as we do this, we'll see things happen. Now, maybe there's a small connection here. He's like talking about forgiveness and, and coming into the kingdom. And he ends with this thing about, so then, you that are in the righteous in the church, if you know someone one that has sinned, go, try to bring them back into the community. Now, he's, in the last three verses here in James, I want to be clear that he's not talking about people that are outside of the church in this context, though I think he would probably say that's true as well. He's talking about people that have been a part of the community, that were following Jesus, that have walked away. And he's saying, you, brothers and sisters, he keeps using that language, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, there's this communal, responsible connectedness that is supposed to be felt and experienced as you read and hear this letter. He's saying, you, you have a responsibility for that person's life. You are not supposed to just sit back and watch them walk away from what you know to be true and right and good. And to just kind of be like, well, we all believe different things. He's saying, no, they've experienced it. And you have a duty, you have a responsibility to go and to engage that person and to bring them back into the fold and to not shy away from that and to experience what it might be like to ask that person or to pursue that person. Now, notice he doesn't say you go and like bring a litany of all of the sins that they've committed and all the sins that they're in. He's saying when you notice it, go and do the thing, do the thing to bring them back. Continue to engage with them. And I think he has to be thinking about some of the conflicts that are going on in this like you know, this setting. Because at the end, there's this, the Greek is vague, and I think it's intentional. There's this way in which he says that that, that act, that act of reaching out to someone, that it covers a multitude of sins. He's borrowing almost directly from the language in Proverbs where it says, love covers all. He's saying, as you love these people, as you reach out to them, that there's this really cool thing that happens that both their sins will be forgiven and also, too, as you begin to try to reach out, that there is a way in which you can put behind you the selfishness and the pettiness that you're holding on to, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the sins of your own life. That as you engage in this work of reaching out to people to forgive them, he turns it back and says their sins will be forgiven as they come back. And this love, this grace, it will be extended to them and it will cover all sorts of things, but also, too, your sins. It's like he, he doesn't want to let them off the hook. Just because you're still in, just because you're able to see their sin doesn't mean you don't have sins. And also, too, if you've ever had somebody walk away from you, you've all experienced this probably to some degree. It really sucks. It hurts. As a pastor of a church, when people leave, when people walk away from faith, no longer wanting to engage, there's pain, there's suffering that begins to exist there. There's bitterness that grows when people don't want to engage in what you're doing and what you've given your life to. I think many of you would agree that you don't always understand it. And there's this thing that happens where there's sin that forms in your own life because of somebody else's sin. And he's saying, if you have the ability to lay that aside and stop worrying about yourself 
and all the ways they hurt you and all the ways that it's been unfortunate for you and uncomfortable for you and all of the ways that you have been you know, bothered by this and you instead pursue them for them, there's a way in which your healing comes in that process as well. And that that's the type of love that brings people back in. This unconditional, forgiving, gracious, merciful love because that's the love that Christ has shown us. That's the love that enamored us. That's the first love that brought us into the fold. And he's saying you must extend it in the same kind of way. You must offer this to those around you. Because if the truth that is to be lived as much as it is to be believed actually begins to animate your life and you truly, genuinely believe it and you see the power of the Holy Spirit moving and working and and you see prayer happening around you and you're singing songs of worship and thanksgiving and you're seeing people healed... There's a way in which you can't not but long for others to experience and participate in that with you. At least we should. I think it's another barometer check of, hey, if this isn't something that's natural for you, then do you really believe the things you say you believe? Maybe that's just me. Maybe I just feel checked on this, you know? But I think it would be a natural outworking of saying, if you believe this, and you really genuinely believe it, then wouldn't you want to do these things? Wouldn't you want to restore? Wouldn't you want to forgive? Wouldn't you want to bring people back in despite the pain and the suffering? Because that's what Jesus does to us over and over and over again. Just like in Esther, James does not let us off the hook. We are just as much a part of the problem. And I love that because I think it's really easy to assume that everybody else is wrong. They're out there, reprobate sinners. They're the ones that walked away, and that's their problem. And the gospel forces us to see that like, we exist in that mess, and that there's a way in which Christ is calling us and reminding us of the forgiveness that he has given, the grace and the mercy that he has called us to, and that we've experienced in him. And that we are to be a community and a people that live with that kind of ethos, that kind of like motivating experience that defines the culture of what it means to be the church, is to be a culture of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, both towards yourself and to others. I think as we do that, we will live the truth that we believe. So as the band comes up, we're going to move to our time of communion. And this is the natural connection point. I mean, this is why we take communion every week, is to remind ourselves of that kind of forgiveness, that kind of restoration that he's speaking about over and over and over again, to be reminded of the truth of what it is that we believe. It's why we say the Nicene Creed every Sunday, to remind us of what it is that we believe, what it is that we claim and hold to be true, what it is that we think that animates us, that pushes us, that energizes us into this work. And we come to the table to receive the elements, and we take the bread and the cup And we hold on to those elements, and as we do here, you'll go back to your seats, and I'll come back up in the reception of those elements for us. As we do this, we believe that in this moment that something happens, that Jesus becomes tangibly present to us here through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're reminded of the grace and the forgiveness and what he did, the sacrifice for us, and it empowers and equips and it changes us, and we believe that somewhere inside of us, that bread and that juice turns into the body and the blood of Jesus for us and that we become more like Christ and we begin to live into the mission of Christ and that we begin to operate and function and what it means to see the kingdom come here in Birmingham as it is in heaven. 
we're reminded of our truth and of our grace that we've been given to go and to live this out, to live this truth as we believe it. And sometimes you need to be reminded of what you believe. Sometimes you need to experience what you believe in outward ways, right? Sometimes you need to hear the prayers and the songs of those standing next to you. Sometimes you need to walk down here even though you don't necessarily believe it in this moment. You don't feel it in this moment, but you come again and again to be changed, to be shaped, to be formed. And in so doing, becoming who you're meant to be. To become evidence of the Spirit. To display the fruit of the Holy Spirit's equipping and changing and shaping and forming of you in order that those around you would experience the real tangible presence of the gospel in and through you. So as the band plays the song, I invite you to come and, and to think about what it would mean to allow this change, to allow this belief and this truth to actually, you know, day in and day out really affect what you do, what you believe and how you operate and function. Ask the Lord what it means to extend grace and forgiveness to those around us that have hurt us, that have caused pain and suffering. What it means to be evidence of this work to those that we encounter and that we follow. What it means to beseech the Lord in prayer and to ask for his movement, to ask for his presence in our lives. So as the band plays, come take a piece of the bread and the cup, go back to your seats, hold on to those elements, and come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.